And excited to uh, be able to look at the book of James again with you today. You can turn in your Bible to James chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at that. We're getting close, I think, to figuring this out. See, this is why I need to get this figured out during the break and not wait till I start speaking, because uh, technology is a wonderful tool, and yet it uh, doesn't always work great. So... Um, yeah, go ahead and turn to James 1. As we've been talking about, James, the theme of James is genuine faith on display. It is, what is genuine faith? Well, this is what it looks like, and the book of James tells us that. It shows us, it's helpful to us both in saying, okay, do I have that genuine faith? Is that something that is true of my life, these things in James? But it's also helpful for us as believers to say, okay, if this is what should mark my life, if I have genuine faith, am I living this out? Can I be more faithful to the Lord in living out these truths in the book of James? So we, uh, that's the overall theme. And then we looked at there's a number of marks of genuine faith. So the way that James is organized is he goes through a series of marks of genuine faith. It's not so much... Uh, a linear argument such that Paul usually has in his epistles, but it, it addresses this one theme and then just hits topic by topic. So it organized a little bit differently. And the first topic, as we've been looking at, is genuine faith considers trials as joy. So genuine faith considers trials as joy. That's what we've been looking at uh, these last couple times that we'll continue looking at today. And that goes all the way from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to verse 18 of chapter 1. It's considering trials as joy. Now, in that longer section of 2 to 18, I'm not able to preach all four of those or cover that whole passage in one week, so we've been taking it little by little. Oh, looks like we're uh, getting real close here. Let me just make sure it's the full screen and not just part of it. Let's see. See if that's better. There we go. We got it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. At least, yeah, all in the front there. Fantastic. So as we, uh, so that's the title, and here's the different marks, the 13 marks that I just mentioned of what genuine faith looks like, and we're just on that first one, that genuine faith considers trials as joy. So, so far, like I said, it's, it's four sections I needed to break down, verses 2 to 18. And we looked at the first one in verses 2 to 4, to think rightly regarding trials. And then the last time we looked at pray expectantly during trials. Today we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 12. And in this section, we're going to be looking at the command to maintain perspective during trials. To make sure we have the right perspective on things. And then in the future, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 18, which is to distinguish accurately between trials and temptations. So I must say I've um, enjoyed going through this, but I tell you, it's, uh, it's challenging to myself. And I, the, the application of this is so apparent in our lives and every situation we face. And so I hope it's a joy for you to look at this today, as I know it has been for me this week. So let me, um, let me read the passage. In fact, I want to read, uh, starting in verse, verse 2, 
And so we'll read, we'll look at, so if you have your Bibles, open them, keep them open there, James 1, starting in verse 2 through verse 12. Considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man. And stable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now let me just pray for us one more time as we look at this passage. Father, we are looking at here your very word, what you have revealed to us, pages of scripture, Lord, for our lives to be for our thoughts, our motives, our desires, Lord, and certainly our actions as well. And Lord, you could have um, written thousands of books, Lord, to give us instruction, but you gave us the scriptures, these 66 books, Lord, and in them contained the words of life. And we pray as we look at these verses, Lord, that we would not only strive to find what it is saying and interpret it accurately, but God, that we would order our life by it, that we would be doers of the word, Lord, and not merely hearers. God, impress your word upon our hearts today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we live in a fallen world. Now, before sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, the world was not broken. It was harmony. There was harmony between man and God. There was harmony with each other, and there was even harmony between us and the created world. And then we read, at that time, when sin entered, when Adam and Eve broke God's law, everything became broken. All of these relationships both man and God, both person to per- and person to person and with our world around us. And now we live in a broken world. And, the, and God's word addresses from Genesis 3 at the fall all the way through Revelation 20. There is the reality that sin is in this world and what that looks like and how we are to deal with that. And so scripture is clear about the pain and hurt and sadness that are in this world because of what sin has done. Scripture doesn't shy away from that truth. But we also know from our own experience that we live in a broken world, don't we? 
when we read Scripture and it speaks of sin and it speaks of the pain and sorrows of physical ailments, of death, of broken relationships, it resonates with what we know of the world around us as well. Because I think all of us, I know all of us, have experienced that to some extent. And some have perhaps more than others. Or perhaps you're going through a particular trial right now where you see the brokenness of this world. I know some of you are going through serious medical issues that we've been praying for. Or there's a family member or friend who's suffering physically. There are strained marriages in here. Fices, any number of trials in this world. Now, that's, it's not to say that everything is bad in this world. Right? There are good things. There is a common grace in this world, and we can enjoy things. So I don't want to say that everything's bad. We enjoy sunsets. We enjoy going to the mountains. I love going up to the eastern Sierras and the beauty that God has made. And There are many things that we can rejoice in in this world. But no matter what good there is in this world, we know that it is only temporary, and we know that death is coming. So we know the world is broken. Now, if you're a believer and have genuine faith in Christ, you know that this world is not your home, right? You know that although there's brokenness, although hurt and pain in this world, this isn't the end for you. That you can live for something else, something beyond this world. We know that to be true, but the problem is we don't always live like it, do we? The problem is, is we're in this world around us and we can often be conformed to its thinking. The world doesn't talk about constantly heaven, but looking towards the next life, focused on this life. Now, maybe not, it's not said blatantly all the time, live for the now. Sometimes it is. Some, some clown wrote a book called Your Best Life Now, but <laughs> some people actually say such foolish things. But even if it's not said so blatantly, that is the message in the world around us. And we too often become influenced by our culture, and our thinking becomes just like this world. And we are focused so much on what's going around, around us that we don't hold on to those spiritual truths that are frankly more important than the physical realities that you're facing, or the social or the problems that you're facing. More important are spiritual realities and needing to look to those. And a good example, I want to just talk about one verse quick. A good example for us that's given in Scripture is Moses. In Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26, he understood this. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater, uh, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, and as far as material possessions, life of privilege, he had it. He was in the prime spot. If you time you were in the right spot, five. but he was willing that up to stand with God's people. And it says, he received the reproach of Christ. That his faith in God was looking toward Messiah, toward the Christ one day. That he was willing to endure that treatment 
ill treatment by people because of why? Because he was looking for the reward. Certainly his culture, Egyptian culture, was looking at the immediate, was looking at what was around him, but Moses was not. He was looking forward to the reward and keeping that eternal perspective. And that's what we all must have to remember what is truly important and truly valuable. When our affections, what we love, what we desire, our spiritual things and eternal things, that's the secret to what was said in, in verse 2 of considering trials as joy. When your mind is so set on spiritual things and on heavenly things, then you can see temporal things and the temporal trials of life in the right perspective. And you can have joy. So what we're going to see today are three encouragements towards maintaining perspective in trials so that we will be able to endure them with joy. So we had seen, again, quickly to review in verses 2 to 4, we need to think rightly regarding trials, that God uses trials in our lives to make us a more complete person, to grow us in godliness. And then we saw in 5 to 8 that we need to turn to God for wisdom in trials. And the Lord loves to provide us that wisdom. He wants to give us that. And now, again, we'll see these three encouragements to maintain perspective in trials. And I think these are helpful for us because we too easily lose that perspective. So we're starting in verse 9. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start there in verse 9, and that's where we find our first encouragement. Rejoice in spiritual riches. We must rejoice in spiritual riches. Verse 9 reads, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Now he addresses the brother here, the brother of humble circumstances. So we see right away that James is referring to believers in this verse. And we see that the certain type of believer that he's addressing is what? It's the brother of humble circumstances. Humble circumstances. Literally, the word means, the way it reads in the Greek is the brother, the lowly one. The brother of the lowly one. And we can, that word for lowly is translated humble, stances, humble, can refer to the godly virtue of humility, and often is in Scripture. In fact, James uses it to refer to the humble person. So why are we thinking of humble condition as being poor, financial poverty? Well, that's because the very next verse, if you look down in your Bible, he then turns to the rich. The rich man is what he contrasts this with in the next verse. So because of that quick contrast there between the rich and the poor, we know he's referring to financial poverty here. He's saying this is a believer who's going through financial hard times that is financially poor. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that part of James's audience is financially poor, should it? This letter, as we saw in verse 1, and if you don't recall, you can look up at verse 1. This is to the tribes scattered abroad, the dispersion of Jews. So these are Jews who had been living in Israel and probably in Jerusalem, since James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and had spread abroad. And being spread abroad in these new places, they probably did not have good jobs. 
to get money. So they were poor. Many of them, if not most of them, were very poor. And with poverty, usually comes low social status, especially when you're outside of your home country. So James addresses these believers who are in poverty. And it's not surprising to hear of believers in poverty. In the early church, most believers were poor. And we remember that, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about that. As believers, uh, not many of us are noble and wise. It reads, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. And this passage reminds us, well, it's certainly not because you have uh, impressed God that he's made you a believer. It's not something great that you have done, but God chooses those who are weak and usually those who are poor to come to him. And so we see that God's love goes out to those who the world does not think is great. And this is the testimony throughout Scripture of God's care and love for the poor. Now, I'm going to throw a lot of verses up here. The slides will be available online, or you can take a picture. But a lot of things point out, just make, make it very clear how God cares for those who are in financial trouble. That may be you, and you may, th- may think, does God care? about my struggles. The law included provisions for the poor. The Psalms repeatedly speak of God's love for the poor. The Proverbs teach us to be gracious to the poor. The prophets exhorted the people to care for the poor. The Gospels instruct us to care for the poor. And the epistles contain commands that we are to care for our brothers in need. Again and again in Scripture, we see God's love and care for the poor. And this is just a small sampling of the verses. This is not exhaustive by any means. Were you to do an exhaustive approach, um, you would fill uh, many slides with uh, verse references of God's love and care for the poor. And it should remind us, encourage us, if we are going through financial times, of God's love for you. And it should remind us to also, as God's children, to care for the poor as well. But it's certainly not to say that God loves you more if you're poor either. Not mistake that and that you have to be poor for God to love you. Lack of wealth is not a virtue. But again, lack of wealth is also not a lack of faith either. Those in the prosperity gospel would say, well, if you're poor, it's because, well, because you don't have enough faith. And that is certainly not the testimony of Scripture. Here he addresses the brother, the lowly one. We do have brothers who are poor. Now again, back in verse 9, then the brother of humble circumstances is who James is addressing. Now, what is the command? What is he telling him to do? And we see here the word glory, is to glory in his high position, which is interesting. We don't see, we certainly don't see criticism of the poor person. James doesn't see, now the brother of humble circumstances, you poor brother, what are you doing? You know, get, get to work. That wasn't the case here at all. That wasn't 
what he started off with. And it wasn't, oh, let's all feel bad for the poor person either. What does he say? Glory, he should glory in his high position. Now, the word glory there can be translated to boast, and it often is. And this word here, to glory, he is to glory, is, is a command, it's an imperative in the original, and it actually sits at the very front of the sentence for emphasis. This is what James is driving at. Okay, he wants the poor brother in humble circumstances to do. Glory in his high position. And you'll and some if you have the ESV or LSB, I think they do translate it boast as well. And it can mean that to boast or to brag. It's the same word that's used in uh, chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Well, how is he here in chapter 1, verse 9, giving the command, Hey, brother, in humble circumstances, boast. And later... In chapter 4, he says, all such boasting is evil. Well, we know that the difference is, what are you boasting in? That's what it comes down to. What are you boasting in? What do you glory in? What do you consider valuable? Usually when we boast, it's a sinful boasting. And so unless you try and use James 1.9 as an excuse for boasting we got to be clear, what is he boasting about or commanding to boast about? And it's to boast about your high position. Now, he's talking about a high position in society, is he? Because these people they don't have a high position. Speaking then of a spiritual high position, they're to boast, to find their glory, to find their joy, their treasure in their spiritual high position. It probably was, reminds you of Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, where he contrasts what the foolish boast of and what we should boast of. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The one who is, has little in this world, who's poor and an outcast, has reason to boast, has reason to say, uh, speak of great things because he has spiritual blessings. Now, what, what, what are these spiritual blessings? What are we talking about? What, what high position in spiritual riches does the poor believer, what does he really have? Well, again, we could go on and on about this, but let me just list a few for you. Forgiveness of sin. As a believer, you are not guilty before God right now, but you are standing in his favor. You're no longer a slave to sin. I tell you, any one of these should give you reason to boast constantly. Reason to have joy in trials. You're no longer walking in delight. You are now a child of God. You enjoy a loving relationship with the King of Kings. You have immediate access to speak to God anytime you want. Anytime. And he wants you to come before his throne. He invites you to come. We have a great high priest who understands us. Second Peter 1 says we have everything related to life in God. And then we have the hope of heaven as well. 
And again, this is just a small sample of our blessings in Christ. These are just a few of the things that we have. James is telling them, look, you have been been given riches beyond compare. They just aren't of this world. They just belong somewhere else. They are spiritual riches. Do these things excite you? This list here? I hope it does. If it doesn't, then you don't understand them as well as you should. And the more you study them, the more you'll be excited about them. Every one of them. And again, a hundred more that we could list that we have in Christ. These are exciting things. You say, well, what about... There's, in this life, I, I have trouble. I'm poor. Brother, Revelation says, I know you're poverty, but you are rich. Well, this is the great irony of poor believers, isn't it? I know you're poverty, but you're rich. Well, wait a minute. I know you're poverty, but how can that be? Because they're rich spiritually. And you are rich spiritually. You have so much, and not because of anything you've done, And praise God for that, because then if it's based on what you've done, then it can be taken away again when you fail. But it's because of what Christ has done. So how can you have joy? How can you have perspective? Well, you think about your spiritual blessings. You think about how rich you are in Christ. And you may not have a fancy car or a nice house, not even sure what a 401k is. But if you have these things, you have riches beyond compare. And we lose that perspective. We get so discouraged, disheartened about troubles in this world, don't we? I I know it's easy for us to do because they're right in front of us. But we need to look at our spiritual blessings. So certainly the direction here, he's speaking to the poor and the trial that he's speaking to directly is, is material lack. But this is true of every trial, that we have riches that are more important than our trials that we're facing. Maybe the trial is physical suffering or disease, as I know it is for some of you. You can rejoice that you can go straight to the Lord of the universe and cast your cares upon him. You have that access If you're in a marriage that's difficult, you can rejoice because no matter what your spouse says or does, you can respond in kindness because you have the Holy Spirit within you that gives you that ability. That's an amazing reality, a truth, something that you have. If you are lonely, feel that no one cares for you, you can rejoice that you have a Heavenly Father and a Savior who has promised to never leave you or forsake you. No matter what trial it is, again, this is speaking directly to material lack, but whatever trial it is, you have those spiritual blessings that are bigger and more important than whatever trial it is you're facing. And you need to get of it and on the spiritual and focus your mind there. The hymn writer wrote, Turn your eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth are strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The things of this earth will go strangely dim. Not just the good things, especially the bad things, grow dimmer when we consider our spiritual blessings, and your mind is filled with those. So the first way to maintain perspective so that you can have joy in trials is rejoice in your spiritual riches. Rejoice in what you have 
And remember, it's what you have because of Christ. Christ made all these things possible. All of, all of those blessings again. You didn't accomplish any one of those, not a single one. Christ accomplished all of those. And what a reason to rejoice, no matter what trial that you're in. Second one here in verses 10 and 11. Our second encouragement here is to recognize the transitory nature of wealth. So we saw the brother of humble circumstances to glory in his high position. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And as we turn from the brother humble circumstances to the rich man in verse 10, there's a lot of debate between commentators. Is the rich man a believer or is he an unbeliever here? What are we looking at? And it's really by looking at the Greek grammar is you can, you can get a better understanding of who is spoken of. And I, I think it's best, uh, while looking at the Greek directly, it could be translated literally. Let him who boasts, the brother, the lowly one, in his high position. On the other hand, the rich one, in his lowly position. A commentator, Lenski, uh, provided this literal translation. And in this construction, we can see then that the verb boast refers both in verse 9 to the brother, the lowly one, and the rich one in verse 10 as well. And we see that in your Bibles, you probably have... Uh, to glory is in italics in verse 10. That's because it's that word is not repeated. There is no verb there, but it's using the verb from verse 9 to say that's what the rich man is to do as well. He's also to glory or to boast. Well, seeing as that verb applying both to 9 and 10, we can also see a likely case is let him boast the brother. Now we're talking about the lowly one in his high position and then the rich one in his lowly position. So probably verse 10 is referring to a believer as well. Um, I think is the most likely what's going on here. But that said, the point that James is making applies here if you're a believer or unbeliever. So at the end of the day, the point is the same. And the point is recognizing coming humiliation. The rich man is to glory, to boast in his coming humiliation just as the poor believer should boast in the greatness of spiritual blessings, because these are much more important than material things, the rich man should boast in spiritual things as well, rather than the emptiness of material things, because those are passing away. Those are disappearing fast. Much similar to Paul's, he says, count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That's what the rich man should do. Count it all as loss. It's not important what you have. Now, I don't believe that James is making a special emphasis to give instruction to the rich here. He will later in the book of James. The encouragement is mostly towards the poor man here and reminding the poor man, look, wealth isn't forever. Every person will die. The rich will die as well. And you can't take it with you. We've heard the illustration or the analogy, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. 
And it's true. You don't take anything off of this planet with you. We are reminded repeatedly in Scripture how riches are, don't we? That riches are not something that lasts forever. And we need to recognize the transitory nature of wealth. In Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, Do not worry yourself to get wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. And again in Proverbs, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. Jesus reminded us of the transitory nature of wealth. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And the epistles as well. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We are again and again reminded that riches fade away. And that we cannot take them with them with us at all. Now, James, in making this point, wants to give an analogy because analogies help us. Okay, what are what? Uh, how quickly does this happen? In verses ten b to eleven, he talks about the flowering grass passing away, and when the heat comes, that the grass and the flower is destroyed. Now, the climate in Israel, if you've been to Israel or familiar with that part of the world, they call it a Mediterranean climate because it's right next to the Mediterranean Sea. And you've probably heard that said also of Southern California has a Mediterranean climate. The point is, is that they're somewhat similar. In Israel, when there's rains, then you'll see flowers come up, it'll, the grasses will grow, but when the summer heat hits, it all turns brown. I my visit to Israel was in the summer, and it was brown. Everything was brown. Well, that's just like Los Angeles, isn't it? We're going to get rain this week, I think, which we're looking forward to. Hills turn green for a little while, don't they? It's fantastic. I think I'm in Ireland or something like that, although I know that's much, much better than the hills of Los Angeles. But, but it's so different from the brown that it's fantastic. They, they, they spring up so fast. It's amazing how quickly things turn green after just a little rain. But just as quickly, right, when the summer hits, or sometimes it's spring because rains uh, don't happen too often around here, it already turns brown. It turns brown fast. That's the illustration that James is using here. Like the brown hills around Santa Clarita, that's how quickly wealth is gone. And not particularly wealth. And you'll notice here, he talks about what goes away here. It's the rich man. It says in verse, verse 10 there, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. And then in verse 11, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will pass away. And that of his pursuits is the idea of like on a business trip. In the midst of Conducting business in the midst of going around, he will pass away. And the point here is that riches are transitory because every person is transitory. Riches fade because you fade. We know that, well, the saying is there's nothing certain in life but death and taxes. 
and uh, our country's getting a lot more taxes these days, but death for certain is, is coming to you. And that's not just the rich man. Now, he points to the rich man here. The rich man will pass away. And why does he talk about the rich man passing away instead of every man passing away? Well, the rich man thinks less about that, typically. The rich man gets comfortable or perhaps trusts in his riches than the poor man. But it's certainly true of all of us. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, you will pass away. And you should never find your comfort and security in money because you are not going to be able to take that with you. Now again, the point that James is making here about the transitory nature of all men, and so don't draw direction as well. No matter what it is in this life that you want to hold on to, that you find your joy in, you will leave that behind on this earth. Whether that's the comfort of your home, whether that's relationships that you have in this world, whether it's your job, your position of status, the opinion of others in this world, every one of those things you're leaving behind in this world. And you need to be thinking of the next world and what will happen. And so we can find joy in trials because we know that these trials, they're temporary. Because you are temporary, your trials are temporary. But you may say, I, I plan to live another 40, 50 years. Some of you, definitely not that long. Um, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> I don't see myself making another 40, 50 years. I'm hoping for another 10. We'll see. Actually, I'm ready to go, frankly. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm showing the mileage. Um, but, but every one of us, that time will come. And so you know what? To find your joy in these things that aren't lasting, it's meaningless. We need to find our joy in what he just talked about, our spiritual blessings. And that's a reason for joy and not to be discouraged about what's happening right now because it is transitory. Well, we need to get to the third one here for sure, and that's in verse 12. The third encouragement which the second one points to, is the reward of endurance. Verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And here in verse 12, James is summarizing, you can see it uh, very similar to verse 2, some words that are repeated, perseverance, or it's sometimes translated endurance in verses 3 and 4. Um, and then um, the word for trials is repeated again. So very similar. He's picking up the theme again. But this is in the form of a beatitude. Blessed. Blessed is a man. Now, as we said in the very first message in this series, James borrows a lot from his half-brother Jesus. And he, he was familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. And we see him picking up Jesus here about with a beatitude. So that's the form of this sentence here, not a command so much, as a statement, a statement of truth. It's not just a wish, but it's stronger than that. One commentator would say even a verdict. This is what is true, that blessed is he who perseveres under trial. The word blessed uh, sometimes is said to be happy. But just, uh, it's an inner peace and joy when you're walking in favor 
with God. And that is certainly what we want, isn't it? To be a blessed person, to have that inner peace, that inner joy, because we're walking in faithfulness. Well, it doesn't come to everybody. It comes to the person who perseveres under trial. To persevere, to remain steadfast, to endure. It's from two words, under and then to remain, put together there. It's to remain under. It's to not escape the trial. Happy are you if you escape the trial. That's not what he's saying. Happy are you when you faithfully endure the trial. When going through the trial, you remain faithful to the Lord. You honor him in how you respond. You don't respond in anger. You don't respond in complaint, but you faithfully endure under the trial, through the trial. Having a trial in and of itself does not bring joy. Having a trial in and of itself does not mean you are blessed. It is how you respond. How will you respond? Will you stay faithful and obey the Lord through the trial, faithfully enduring it? And that is the key, that endurance, that perseverance. That is the key here to have this blessing of the Lord. And if you do, if you are faithful, look what it says here in the the rest of this verse. Once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life. And once he has been approved, and this is tested and found to be genuine, is the idea here. You have been approved means that your faith is really really what you said it was. It's a true faith in God, not a false faith. And again, looks back at our whole theme, a true, genuine faith, a saving faith, will endure trials. And if you are not faithfully enduring a trial, if you are giving in to sin through the trial, you need to examine your faith. You need to examine, am I, do I truly know the Lord? Because a genuine faith does persevere and will be approved by God. And if you do have a genuine faith, you will receive the crown of life, it says. Received by the crown, the crown elsewhere in the New Testament, and usually, you know, by the Apostle Paul, and where we talk about the wreath, the victor's crown that you receive at the games. This is not likely actually what's in view here. James is not writing to Gentile communities. He's this is the first book written in the New Testament, right? So we're not James is probably not referring to that. The crown that he's referring to is an, the Old Testament concept of a crown which can refer to royalty, but also to a special honor or picture of happiness and prosperity. In Proverbs, it talks about an excellent wife is the crown of her. That's the kind of crown that there's a special honor that is given, a a special uh, status of happiness and prosperity. So a crown, he says, if you're approved and have genuine faith, you receive this crown of life. And the crown of life is best understood as the crown which consists of life. This is a crown of life. This is the the reward, the, the honor you receive is life itself. And it is something you will receive, right? He will receive. This is talking about eternal life. This is the reward of eternal life, that if you are faithful, if you have found, are found to have a genuine faith, you will receive this eternal life, and the future time. And so, 
he says that this will come, it's promised to those who love him. And here we see at the very end of that verse here, promise to those who love him, uh, a description of Christians. This isn't a special, all Christians are those who love him. And there's a number of verses that speak to that. And again, you can get the slide later because it's a little tiny font on there. Uh, Again, again, in scripture, Christians are those who love God. And so what we see here then is those who persevere are those who have a genuine faith. And those who have a genuine faith are those who love God. And we can also say are those who will receive eternal life. But if you do not persevere, then you have to ask, do I have that genuine faith? Is that truly me? And if you are a believer, here is encouragement. Continue to persevere. It doesn't mean if you stumble once, I lost my salvation or, or I got to question everything, but it does characterize your life if you're a believer that you persevere in trial. It should be consistent in your life. Now, as an example of one who persevered, the Apostle Paul, we could say Paul is the man of many trials in a lot of ways, isn't he? Uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 27, talk about the difficulties that Paul went through. And as you think of your own trial that you're right now, Paul, how do you compare? Now, maybe someone has worse trials than Paul. It doesn't change the truth of what we're talking about. But I really doubt it does. He talks about in that passage about imprisonments, beatings, lashes, stoning, shipwreck, hunger and thirst, and he goes on and on of the different trials that he faced. Paul knew trials, but what does he say in that same book in 2 Corinthians? He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far above all comparison. He talks about things which are seen and unseen. Light affliction, Paul writes, imprisonments, beatings, stoning, light afflictions? Would you call those light afflictions? I, I would hesitate to call those light afflictions if I was facing those things. How can you possibly call those light afflictions? Well, you can when you compare it with with our heavenly reward, with our spiritual blessings now and our heavenly reward later. Then all these trials grow strangely dim. Then you could say, you know what? I can endure this because I have a reward before God one day. This same thought is echoed in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And again, he's looking at some really significant trials. What about your trial? Is it worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed? No, it's not. It's difficult. Are trials hard? Are you struggling right now with your health, with your relationships? Yeah, I I imagine many of you are. And all of us will at one time or another. With your heavenly reward. Compare them with your spiritual blessings. Your attitude will change. So application, well, it's just the three points that we've talked about. 
Rejoice in spiritual riches. Remember that you've been given more spiritual blessings than you can possibly comprehend. Think on those in trials. Dwell on the riches in Christ. Recognize the transitory nature of wealth. When the difficulties of life seem overwhelming and you can't seem to achieve the life that you want, remember that this life is fleeting. Remember that, look, you need to endure to the end. That might be another 10 years, might be another 50 years of your life. But this life, compared to the heaven, 10 billion years, then 10 trillion years, the next 10, 20, 30 years seem pretty short compared to that, don't they? Transitory nature of wealth because of the transitory nature of life. And then finally, realize the reward of endurance. That there is a heaven waiting where there is no more pain and no more sadness, no more anger, no more brokenness that we can look forward to. And set your eyes on that. And look forward to that day when you will stand before God in heaven one day and long to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Live for that, and you can endure the trials that you're facing right now. Let's pray together. Father, it's so hard to look at difficulties in this world and consider them as joy, to think about them as, as joyful. It's hard, God, because life is broken. But Lord, you and we give you praise, Christ, for what you have done in us to make us new people and given us such hope and joy and blessings. And we praise you, God. I pray that the minds of each one of us here will focus on those truths and those realities. Lord, that we would think rightly because we want your approval to stand before you one day. God, we pray that day would come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.